type of medicine that trains your body to fight any foreign agent. Plants are helpful for the ecosystem. It's an electronic device for storing and processing data. The nervous system is all the collection of nerves in your body. Yeast is a eukaryote. Welcome to Spectacular Science, where it's all about science, with your host, Akshay. Hey listeners, welcome back to this episode of Spectacular Science. I'm your host, Akshay. I'm here at the zoo, and I'm really wondering about how the, all these animals are how they are right now. Like, have you ever wondered how humans evolved from apes to, well, humans, our smart, wonderful selves? And have you ever wondered why animals always look different? Like, different species of birds look different based on their environments. Why is that? Well, that's all thanks to evolution. Evolution is when organisms change over time, and there are many different processes that evolution can occur, which includes natural selection. Evolution is basically change over time, and I really want to learn more about how evolution works, and why evolution is so important, and even how human evolution ended up. That's why today, I am meeting up with Dr. William Ratcliffe. Dr. Ratcliffe is at Georgia Tech and is an evolutionary biologist. His lab studies how single-celled organisms evolved into multicellular animals like us. I'm going to meet him at the zoo today, surrounded by all these exotic and wonderful animals. They're all different in some way. Uh, just walking through the zoo. Oh, there he is. I see Dr. Ratcliffe over there. Let me go say hi. Hi, Dr. Ratcliffe. Hello, Akshay. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me at the zoo today. I know it's really noisy. There's so many animals out and about today. Well, you know, as, as we were just saying offline, uh, my home is sort of like a zoo, so I just feel, I feel perfectly at home here with all the animal noise. Great. So can you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. So my name is uh, William Ratcliffe, and I'm a professor at Georgia Tech. I'm an evolutionary biologist. Um, and so, in addition to teaching classes on evolution, my, I, I run a research lab which explores questions of evolution. And specifically, we, you know, practicing scientists tend to get very focused on one small little piece of the bigger picture because we have to become experts, you know, world experts in that one thing. Um, that's how progress is made. And so the thing that I am a world expert in is understanding how complex life evolves from simpler life and mainly how multicellular organisms, like these animals that we have around us, or plants that you can see, or, or mushrooms, how those evolve from single-celled ancestors. Wow, that's really interesting. So how did you get interested in science? I think I've always been interested in science, as far back as I can remember, um, and very much a biologist. Like, I, I've, I, I've, I like all branches of science because, you know, for me, it was always like, it provided the tools for understanding the world around us, right? And something as simple as a walk in the park or just looking out the window into, just immediately becomes more interesting because you're asking questions about the way that things got to be, how they're interacting, what just looks like static plants or whatever, all of a sudden becomes this, you know, slow motion of uh, ecological battlefield in which plants are waging war against each other, dropping toxins that prevent predator, uh, you know, competitors for growing, enticing pollinators to come in, like all the sort of biology is so intricately interwoven 
And the more I just got interested, you know, the more I learned about it, the more interested I was. I was always like looking through science books as a kid, like doing experiments. And I think maybe more than anything, I spent a lot of time in nature. I grew up um, in California, coastal California, near San Francisco. And my family has um, a cabin in Northern California, about three hours north. It's very rural, you know, it's, it's basically the woods. Um, and I would spend my summers up there. And my little brother and I, who was two years younger, we're very close. We would go exploring, kind of get lost in the woods all day long. And, the, you know, there was no electronics. There was barely electricity. So, like, we weren't just hanging out on iPads or whatever. We were just kind of bored. And, like, what we found interesting was, like, basically running around in nature. And that gets you thinking about these questions about how things got to be the way they are. That's evolution. How things interact in the current day. That's ecology. And both of us ended up getting PhDs in ecology and evolution. So he is a field biologist still in California. I'm a lab researcher now here in Georgia, but we both are full-time professional scientists working in biology. Wow, that's so cool how you both are just, just started out from exploring nature all the way to being evolutionary biologists. Yeah. So let's get started with the evolution part. What is evolution and who came up with the theory of evolution? Yeah, so evolution is understanding how populations of organisms change over time. And I say the words populations very intentionally because we tend to think of evolution in the way like Pokemon evolution works, right? Like where an organism will change and it will evolve and it'll go from simple to complex or something, right? And that's not really the way real evolutionary biology works. Evolutionary biology is change across generations. It's not so much change within one generation. That would be more development or acclimatizing to your environment, but change across generations and change that can be inherited. So there's a lot of or way that organisms change that's not inherited. If I was to go to the gym and get super strong, my kids that I would have after going to the gym would not be any more muscular than the kids I had before going to the gym, right? That's what it makes sense. But that's because that kind of change is something which is the way I'm relating to my environment. It's not heritable change. So evolutionary biology is understanding how populations of organisms change through this sort of heritable component of biology, the kinds of changes that can be passed on to offspring across generations. It can occur very quickly. There are many examples of evolution occurring within what would to human timescales be pretty short, like antibiotic resistance, you know? We worry about bacteria not being killed by, by drugs that would have killed them because they're evolving resistance to antibiotics and they can do this very quickly. Um, some types of, of evolutionary change are very fast. Most of them are relatively slow. So, you know, we domesticated dogs from wolves and that probably took, you know, that certainly took thousands of years. We probably domesticated dogs around 10, 15,000 years ago. We created all these domesticated crop plants from wild ancestors, you know, and those that's still pretty quick, but that's still, you know, occurring over 10,000 year timescales. And if we, in, in the field, the, in the way that professional evolutionary biologists think about the rate of changes, we tend to think of things as occurring over fairly long time scales, right? So we're going to get to this, but, but you know, humans evolved. Uh, we, are, we are a great ape, we're a primate, and we evolved from the same common ancestor as chimpanzees. We shared a common ancestor as chimpanzees about 6 million years ago. And then, you know, the human evolution story is really taken, unfolded over about a 2 million year time scale. So that's still pretty long. Um, what was the second part to your question? Who, who came up with the theory of evolution? So there are actually a number of people that were involved in thinking about 
um, of thinking about sort of, the, you know, evolutionary change um, in populations of organisms, but by far the most famous person and the person that sort of figured it out and got it right was Charles Darwin. Pre-Darwin, there was, there were, you know, he wasn't the first one to even to think, oh, maybe this is, maybe organisms are changing over time. He wasn't the first to think that that was part of the scientific milieu in which, in which he came about, which was early 1800s, Victorian England. Um, but, you know, Charles Darwin was, was raised very religious. He went on this famous voyage of this, this boat called the Beagle, which went through South America and spent several years, basically, uh, they were on a, a, a mission, making better maps, charting courses, and he was the ship's naturalist. So he would go off, much like my brother and I, he'd go off into the woods, collect samples. And, you know, he started out essentially expecting to see evidence for creation, that organisms were created by God um, in a way that was a good fit to their environment and wasn't changing and essentially was perfect. And that, you know, you wouldn't see things like extinction and, and, you know, like because things are essentially static. They are the way they are because they're perfect. And that's kind of the way that most people thought at the time. Um, evolutionary thinking was still, while it was sort of discussed in scientific circles, it wasn't widely accepted. Um, and, and Darwin has these beautiful notes because he kept fantastic notes of his voyage where he's like talking about, you know, he's writing letters to his friends and he's saying like, this isn't making sense. Like, for example, he's out in the Galapagos Islands, which is off the coast of Ecuador you know, a hundred miles off the coast of Ecuador. And this is like a rocky, it's a, it's a hostile environment. The Galapagos, it sounds awesome because it's the tropics, but it's like a little volcanic island in the middle of nowhere with big spiky rocks. And, you know, it's like not a great, great environment. And it's completely different from the coastal Ecuador, which is a lush, beautiful jungle, you know, like trees, like it's completely, completely different. And he's saying, He's, and he's, so he's, he's writing and he's like, you know what's really weird? All of the plants and animals that we have here on the Galapagos are basically the same as what we have on the mainland. Like they're slightly different, but like I can recognize this bird. I can recognize this plant as having, being almost exactly the same as the ones in the mainland. And that makes no sense to me because the environments couldn't be more different. We have this arid volcanic little rock in the middle of the ocean and this beautiful tropical jungle and they're the same organisms. Like, how is that? Possible. I would have thought that, that the ones that were sort of created for this environment would be completely different from the ones from that one. And, you know, he's thinking about this and he's thinking, well, they're close by. <laughs> so maybe they moved from one place to the other and they're not exactly the same. And even as he went across the islands, he could see that the same the bird species were similar, but not exactly the same on every island. And so he starts to think, it, wouldn't it be crazy if these organisms came from the mainland and they began to change? over time and as they move from island to island and so these are the seeds of him thinking about his idea of of the way we now understand evolution to work which is this idea of descent with modification that over time populations of organisms change because there are heritable changes in an organism like we now know it mutations in dna that are passed on to offspring and those offspring acquire that trait from their parents and over many round generations of of tweaking genomes through mutations, you can have changes that gradually change a population and allow them to, you know, essentially do all the cool things that we see in evolution. They can, they can diverge dramatically, they fit to their environment. Here's one of these like fundamental facts about the nature of life that just completely blows my mind every time I think about it. All life on earth, from bacteria, to plants, to animals, to fungi, 
all these different animal species that we have here at the zoo, they all share a single common origin. There is one common ancestor of all life and everything diverged from that, from, from that sort of primordial type of life. So you're saying I'm related to bacteria. You are absolutely related to bacteria. So I'm 99% banana. Well, I don't know if it's that high, but you're <laughs> some, yeah, you and banana, I'm not sure exactly what, you're 99%, you and chimps share a 99% genome similarity. Banana, I'm not sure what it would be. It's probably like 80% or something, but, but still, we haven't shared a common ancestor with plants in, wow, certainly over a billion years. Wow, that is so cool. So all these animals in the zoo are technically my cousins. If you go back deep enough, yeah, basically all these animals and and humans would have essentially shared a common ancestor. And that would be the last last common ancestor of probably at this point, I don't know, tetrapods. That would be things that like lizards and amphibians and mammals, right? And here's this other cool thing sort of about the way that the structure of life works is that you have these sort of nested structure that that um, you're more close. We, we shared a more recent common ancestor with primates than we did with turtles. So you and all primates are more closely related to each other than you are to turtles. Now, all, you know, mammals share a more recent common ancestor than we did to reptiles, right? Because and, and so, so, you know, we are actually more closely related to all mammals than we are to reptiles. You can go one step back and we could say all, let's say all animals, all animals share a common ancestor, probably on the order of 800 million years ago. And so we are all more closely related to, we are, to, to each other than we are to bananas, where we sh might have shared a common ancestor with bananas uh, 1.6 billion years ago or something on the order of that. And of course, we're all eukaryotes, which are these cells that have complex cellular architecture. You probably learned about these in biology class. They have mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. They have a nucleus, all that. That's a derived kind of cell that actually results from a symbiosis between two different kinds of microbes. It's a really cool story. I don't think we have time to get into it here, but but it's a really cool like type of change that only happened once in the history of life, the, the evolution of eukaryotic life. All eukaryotes share a common ancestor. <laughs> and so we are more closely related to any other eukaryote than we are to a bacteria or an archaea. And you can kind of keep stepping back um, this this hierarchy, these, these, these nested hierarchy of common ancestry, and you can get all the way back to the or to the origin of life itself. Wow, that is so cool. So all these animals in the zoo are technically my cousins. If you go back deep enough, yeah, basically all these animals and and humans would have essentially shared a common ancestor, and that would be the last last common ancestor of probably at this point, I don't know, tetrapods. That would be things that like lizards and amphibians and mammals, right? And here's this other cool thing sort of about the way that the structure of life works is that you have these sort of nested structure that that um, you're more close. We, we shared a more recent common ancestor with primates than we did with turtles. So you and all primates are more closely related to each other than you are to turtles. Now, all, you know, mammals share a more recent common ancestor than we did to reptiles, right? Because and, and so, so, you know, we are actually more closely related to all mammals than we are to reptiles. You can go one step back and we could say all, let's say all animals, all animals share a common ancestor, probably on the order of 800 million years ago. And so we are all more closely related to we are to, to each other than we are to 
bananas, where we might have shared a common ancestor with bananas uh, 1.6 billion years ago or something on the order of that. And of course, we're all eukaryotes, which are these cells that have complex cellular architecture. You probably learned about these in biology class. They have mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. They have a nucleus, all that. That's a derived kind of cell that actually results from a symbiosis between two different kinds of microbes. It's a really cool story. I don't think we have time to get into it here, but, but it's a really cool, like, type of change that only happened once in the history of life there the evolution of eukaryotic life all eukaryotes share a common ancestor <laughs> and so we are more closely related to any other eukaryote than we are to a bacteria or an archaea and you can kind of keep stepping back um this this hierarchy these 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 nested hierarchy of common ancestry and you can get all the way back to the or to the origin of life itself this is Awesome. I never knew that all the animals on Earth are technically related to each other. So what is natural selection and how does it work? So natural selection is the mechanism through, it's one of the key mechanisms through which evolutionary change happens. Natural selection uh, is the idea that, you know, Darwin had this logic, which is, I think, fundamental to evolutionary change. Um, and the logic is really simple. And it's really robust and it's an algorithm. I think of it as an algorithm. An algorithm, like we're all familiar with this from computers, right? An algorithm is something where you put in the input, certain things happen and you get an output every time, right? And so evolutionary change, natural selection is a kind of algorithm. And here's the logic of the algorithm. If you have a population of things that can copy themselves, they can reproduce, right? That's important. You can't really have life. You can't have evolution without reproduction. <laughs> it just, it'll just end up being a dead end. So you need something which can reproduce. And so you have now a population of, of, of replicators. If those things are different from one another, if they vary, so they have traits, something about their characteristics is variable. If, that, if those traits that they have, that they vary in, are at least somewhat heritable, so they pass them on to their offspring. And if they affect their fitness. And fitness is a word that's like we use all the time without really defining it. But fitness just means it affects your frequency in the future, either good or bad. So things that would increase fitness would be things that allow you to survive better or have more offspring. <laughs> things that decrease fitness would do the opposite. So if, if, if there's a population of things that are reproducing, they have traits which can increase their frequency or their offspring's frequency in the population in the future, then those traits are going to continue to increase in frequency in the population. They'll, and eventually they'll probably take over. So if you have something which allows you to get more food or avoid dying, those are beneficial traits. They will be preserved by natural selection. And then the, all of the, you know, if you come back in a hundred generations, the whole population might only consist of things that have that trait. And then you need some way of getting new variation. So mutation accomplishes that. So you have mutations which create variation. That variation, if it's beneficial, becomes the new thing that's in the population that sort of takes over and the population has evolved. And so natural selection is, this, is the link there between, is between essentially um, is, is, is the fitness part of, of the algorithm. Natural selection is, is, it sort of adds information in the sense of biology can adapt to environments. It can get better through time because of natural selection. But you need that whole algorithm to be present. You need something that can reproduce, that has heritable variation, that variation affects fitness, there's natural selection, and then the population does evolve. If, and the cool thing about this is that because it's an algorithm, if those conditions are true, you will have evolution. And it doesn't have to only be li living things. 
chemistry can evolve using the same kind of thing. Information in computer systems can evolve. Even information in social systems can evolve. Here's a, you know, the word meme. I'm sure you do, yeah. you know, people post memes on the internet and stuff. So information has actually like kind of these same properties. So if, if, if on this podcast, I were to come up with something truly clever and truly funny, right? I, it originated in my brain. I can transmit it to your brain. That's replication, right? Mm -hmm. And if this thing is really fit in the in the in in the world of ideas, if it can displace other funny ideas or other good ideas, it would spread from my brain to your brain to other brains, and all of a sudden there might be ten thousand copies of my idea out there. That's <laughs> replication. There's natural selection in the in the world of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. There might be mutations. Maybe someone thinks, you know, Dr. Rackless's idea is pretty good, but I can make it even better with this little change. Now that variation, it's heritable. It can be passed on if I make the little change and it might be more fit than my idea. And so, so maybe I come up with some funny word, you modify and make it even better. And then your version takes off, right? And becomes the new thing. So this idea of natural selection, while it is fundamental to evolutionary biology, and it is the way in which, you know, we have all these really cool, diverse organisms that have all these fantastic adaptations and traits. It's not only something that occurs in biology. This is just a feature of our, it's kind of just, it's just a principle of the universe. It's like, if you have something that replicates has heritable variation, that variation affects its success over time, that thing, that population of those replicators, it will evolve. And that actually is, I think that's another one of these sort of fundamental things that just, when I realized, when I learned that, when I really internalized that, it changed the way I saw the world. And it was really cool. Yeah, it's so cool. Now I'm thinking about all these animals around us, how they had different adaptations and they turn into what they are right now. Yep, exactly. And so, you know, so Darwin used this idea of fitness and he was thinking of fitness for an environment. So natural selection from the environment would sculpt these populations of organisms to their environment. So if you're in the desert, you get adaptations that, you know, essentially allow you to survive with low water. If your predators are constantly killing you, well, you know, killing, preying on your population, you get anti-predation defenses. Maybe you become, evolve to become toxic, or maybe you get weapons, right? Horns and claws. Maybe you evolve a social structure where you have lookouts. All of these things occur all the time, independently in these populations, because, you know, life can be a bit of a struggle. So I've heard this thing about how humans evolve. So they say that chimps and other apes immediately turn into a human so is that really how humans evolve yeah there's a lot that's a great question and there's a lot of i think popular misconceptions about how humans evolve there's this you know you've probably seen the picture of like these like of these apes gradually standing up taller and taller until there's a picture of a person walking right yeah. it's called the great chain of being and this is like a very victorian england idea that like humans are the pinnacle and evolution is always pushing things to towards that ideal and we know that's not really the way evolution works. Evolution isn't looking to the future. It's not always making things better. You can have things that become less complex, less sophisticated. You have blind cave fish that evolve without light and hey, they lose the ability to make eyes, right? Mm -hmm. Evolution isn't always about making things more complicated. It's about whatever increases fitness this generation. It's not looking down the road. Um, so, you know, so human evolution, you know, we, we do know that humans are a great ape and we evolved from from essentially things that resemble chimpanzees another popular misconception is that chimpanzees are our actual ancestors and they're not 
chimpanzees have spent just as much time evolving from the same common ancestor that we shared with them about six million years ago as humans have. If you think about it, like going back six million years, humans and chimpanzees, there was one species, one, one species of primate, which, which essentially sep, you know, separated and began separately evolving different species from that. This is very common in evolution. You have one species, you have barriers to genetic information being transmitted and those species begin to diverge. Often the simplest way to have that is to have organisms dispersed on the landscape so you so they're no longer interbreeding, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that common ancestor of 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 humans and chimpanzees was probably more chimpanzee-like than human-like because humans have changed so much from other from other, you know, great apes. But it wouldn't have looked just like a chimpanzee. It would have been something different, right? So chimpanzees have changed, humans have changed. Um, and the story of human evolution is a fascinating one, and we'll only have time to scratch the surface, but but I'll give you the 30,000 foot view of that, which is about, you know, this all occurred um, in Africa and, uh, you know, human origins is essentially, an, it's, it's an African continental story. And about 2 million years ago, you begin to have bipedalism evolving. So rather than kind of run, swinging from branches or running around on all fours, you have a lineage of primates that's primarily walking on their hind legs. Um, and, they are, uh, you know, over the course of that 2 million years, it wasn't like a single species that was becoming more human-like. There were many species, and most of them, like, were sort of branches on this diverging tree that went extinct. And if essentially one, you know, if you, so there are many, many different pathways and many different sort of hominid-type species, which we which we have fossil evidence of. Um, and, you know, the our current species, Homo sapiens, is just like essentially a single branch from that which made it to the common day. And even going back 25,000 years ago, uh, there were little pockets of Neanderthals. I think 25,000 is the most recent Neanderthals. But like, so, so you know, we have these different hominid species which evolved in Africa. They're becoming taller. Mainly we're getting much bigger brains. Bigger brains are very expensive. Like my brain, it's only 3% of my mass and it's 25% of my calorie load. Your brains are really, really energetically expensive. And our brains are basically not really different from other primate brains. We kind of, one way to think about it is we just have a, a bigger monkey brain. <laughs> our brains have the same neural density as other primates, which is actually denser than most other animals, except for birds. Like we have this kind of, if you think about brain weight versus number of neurons, which is kind of like how much processing your brain can do, there this, there's like a line, which kind of a slope there, that the bigger the brain, the more neurons you have. Primate brains and bird brains are like extra dense. They have lots more neurons per weight than other than other animals. Um, but ours aren't any more special than other monkeys. They're just bigger. So we have really big brains that are really expensive. A key part of getting that was being able to, is the innovation of, of cooking food. Um, there's beautiful work by someone named uh, Helena Herculano Cosell, where she's looked at like how much time some a primate of our of our body weight and, and brain size would have to spend foraging if we ate like a like a gorilla. Um, and it would be like 12 hours a day we'd have to be or even more like 14 15 hours a day that we're foraging just to get enough energy to feed our brains but as soon as you have fire you can cook all sorts of things that wouldn't be edible it takes less energy to digest cooked food than not cooked food so we have all this extra resources available to us and that seems to have spurred the evolution of much bigger brains like we have in the modern era wow that's so cool i can't imagine foraging for food for 12 hours but luckily for me i just have to forage to my fridge to get some food very true. And also, luckily for you, you're not, 
you know, you might have been really excited 12,000 years ago if you had the opportunity to go out with your family and hunt a mammoth with a gigantic spear, right? Because that'd be a <laughs> lot of calories. That'd be enough food to feed the whole village for a month kind of thing. But it was incredibly dangerous work, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, in Neanderthals, we have all these all these fossil bones and, and many of the adult males just have evidence of just horrible trauma. Like imagine going up to something that weighs, you know, 10,000 pounds and stabbing it with us with a sharp stick like that's dangerous they turn on you with their tusk and they smack so these these adult males are just their bones are are broken and healed like they are taking a beating to get food so yeah we have it pretty easy <laughs> comparison yeah i don't think my fridge fights back that's <laughs> it's true it's true so this is all so cool how evolution works and how humans didn't really come from just apes, but they came from one common ancestor that all the apes in our world, like chimpanzees and other animals are all related to. It is so amazing. So what advice do you have for kids who are interested in science? Wow, that's really cool. So what advice do you have for kids who are interested in science? I think my best advice is to is to, is to have fun exploring and playing with science, right? Because science doesn't just have to be dry information. I mean, I think scientists think that that part is fun and cool, but, but, but that may not always be fun and cool with the kids. But I think if you can, you know, ask, ask questions, right? And find answers. And actually some of the best questions in evolutionary biology don't have obvious answers. And the real experts may not know the answer to that and that's cool that's not a bad thing not every question has an answer and in fact if you can ask questions and figure out the answers you know that's that's basically what scientists do so i think going out and observing nature and asking yourself questions about like why is this plant doing what it's doing why is this bug doing what it's doing right mm -hmm. realizing that basically all of the traits that you see in existing organisms came about in some ways through some of the most dramatic things that happen in in the world right how many how many you know organisms had to die a horrible death to get the trait that you now see right in some ways these traits are written in the blood of their ancestors which is a weird poetic way of saying biology is a is a is a is a, is a no holds barred grudge match where things are killing or being killed are helping are cooperating Every human story that's ever played out, it's just one little drop in the drama that plays out in your backyard every single day. <laughs> that is so cool to think about, all the stuff that's going on in my backyard. You know what? Maybe I should see if humans could evolve into flying animals. Is that even possible? Maybe we could if we did some genetic mutations. You know, that's actually really complicated. But let's see if we can actually do that. Let's just go around the zoo to see what other animals we can find. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. And I learned so much about evolution. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Um, thanks so much for having me on your show. Yeah, thank you so much. Now to go look around the zoo to see if we can find any more flying mammals. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Spectacular Science. Spectacular Science was created and is produced and hosted by me, Akshay J. Raman. Our theme song is by Chayan Ramachandran. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Ratcliffe, for accepting my interview invite. I learned so much in this episode. Thank you so much. Special thanks to Varun Ramachandran. Please visit SpectacularSci.com, my podcast website, to find interactive activities, articles, and blog posts. You can also find the link to sign up for the Spectacular Science membership, where you can get lots of bonus content. You can also find the link to sign up in the show notes below. You can also contact me at SpectacularSci.com slash contact or email me at podcast at SpectacularSci.com. I love interacting with my listeners and I love it when people reach out to me asking me science questions and giving me episode recommendations. Thank you so much. Also, please subscribe wherever you're listening right now. It really helps and you'll be updated whenever whenever we release a new episode. It also helps me create new episodes and encourages me a lot. Thank you so much for all your support. Thanks for listening to this episode and we'll see you on the next episode of Spectacular Science next week. Keep thinking about science.